last word on the environment on Today FM. With ESB Networks, connecting you to a clean electric future. ESBnetworks.ie So it's time for the last word of the environment with John Gibbons. Lots of stuff to get through. Let's start, John, with the possibility that Irish people may be able to claim compensation for air pollution. Compensation from who and when? Uh, good afternoon, Matt. Yeah, this is arises from an opinion issued by uh, an advocate general of the EU Court of Justice last month. And they made the, the, the conclusion or the observation that it, it may be possible for people to sue their own state over the health effects of illegal levels of air pollution. So that's really the, the, the headline figure here or the headline issue. And it arose really from a case where a Parisian uh, resident took a case against the French government uh, and he was claiming 21 million euros in compensation uh, as a result of what he claimed was uh, damage done to him by air pollution because the French government had failed to to comply with EU air pollution limits. And that that case has been referred uh, to the EU court. And basically, we're really in the process of trying to establish whether or not the EU has jurisdiction in this. In other words, that they could make uh, a ruling that says that people are open to suing their own governments uh, in the event, for example, of... of, uh, uh, experiencing ill health or death indeed as a result of of severe air pollution where basically it's 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 about negligence it's where your government has failed to protect your health because they have allowed for example the illegal burning uh, or illegal uh, air pollution levels to exist and of course we've seen that Matt here in Ireland uh, you often have the, the strange situation that we have many small rural towns and villages with far worse air quality problems than you get uh, in the major cities because they continue to burn for example smoky coal they continue to burn peat and of course they continue to burn uh, turf so these are some of the issues that are coming down the line let's move on and should the climate crisis be treated as a health crisis also Sure. This comes to us from the the UK, uh, the Office for Health Improvement. This is this is a, a branch of the British government, and they issued some guidelines for 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 healthcare professionals. The first thing they said, uh, and maybe it's obvious, but they said basically, climate is the most important health threat of the century. And they're picking up a theme here, really, from the Lancet, which is uh, one of the main medical journals. And what the Lancet said is the science is unequivocal: 1.5 degrees centigrade above average, and the continued loss of biodiversity. What they risk is catastrophic harm to health that will be impossible to reverse. So what we're really saying here is, I guess, that the role of healthcare professionals typically has been to, obviously, to intervene in a health crisis. But what's occurring here is that they're taking the next logical step and saying that, basically, we can't deal with the consequences of a, of a rapidly changing climate unless we also act to mitigate that. So in other words, it's not sufficient for health professionals simply to treat the outcome of this, but rather they need to take an advocacy role in lobbying government, in lobbying politicians, etc. And also, by the way, Matt, uh, it's recommended in these guidelines that health professionals should consider talking to patients and indeed to colleagues about it. So in other words, they're saying that if your doctor should talk to you about the climate emergency, canvas your views, explain why as a health professional he or she is concerned about it. John, and don't, yes, the, Matt. don't the doctors have enough to be doing without actually adding climate discussions into their work? 
You would think that, but I guess the issue really here is that climate is one of these breakout things. Now, I know you wouldn't think it to listen to, you know, to listen to the media generally, but it isn't just something that fits in the box marked environment. It's now kind of breaking out and it's showing up in all kinds of places. And what we now have are health professionals saying the thing that is changing their work, the thing that is driving people into the arms of the, of, of the, of, of the healthcare profession is the changing climate. So what are we getting from that? We're looking at waterborne diseases. We're looking at the spread of infectious diseases we're looking at all the ill consequences coming for example from rising temperatures now that's probably less so in ireland at the moment but even in britain they're seeing the experience of uh, increased increased admissions from heat waves and that's in britain when you move on to continental europe we're already moving into a situation matt where the the climate is changing so rapidly for example in may uh, spain broke all its national records with temperatures in the mid 40s and france recorded its hottest uh, may month ever uh, last month so that basically the dial is moving and this is having huge consequences on population health and i guess the medical profession here is taking the view that rather than simply pulling people out of the river they have to ask the question, why are they ending up in the river in the first place? And by which I mean, why are people getting sick? What is driving illness? And if rising temperatures and all the consequences from that are causing an increase in illness and community sickness and so on, then it behoves the health professionals not just simply to treat people, but also to move up and ask the question, why is this happening? And is there any way that they can help to mitigate that? Let's move to France. Tell us all about the motor way building that is going on with overpasses over the motorways and other roads. Is this something that horrifies you, the creation of more space that presumably could be used by cars to increase traffic? (laughs) Well, I suppose, first of all, France, uh, you know, continental Europe has had a motorway network long before Ireland. So, and in the case of France, for example, what they're doing at the moment is over the next couple of years, they're adding uh, 19 new wildlife overpasses. So essentially what an, a wildlife overpass, Matt, is this is a, a bridge specifically and only for wildlife that runs over these motorways. If you think about a motorway, motorways simply slice through the countryside. So what they do inadvertently, of course, is that they smash up uh, ecosystems and habitats. So you could have a particular species where it might have its breeding grounds in one location and it might have its access to water in another location. And then bang, along comes a motorway right down the middle. So many animals, for example, will attempt to cross that and many of them end up getting killed. In fact, what we're now seeing in Ireland is more and more roadkill arising from that. It's calculated, for example, that 80,000 mammals a day are killed on European roads. These are animals trying to get within their own habitats from one place to another. So the purpose of building these bridges, in France, by the way, they're now moving up to 119 of these bridges on their motorway network. The purpose of these bridges is to allow... Uh, to join up habitats so that wildlife can safely go from point A to point B. And there is a a human benefit in this as well, of course. This greatly reduces uh, collisions, for example, between large mammals and uh, and road traffic because that's something that kills a a fair number of humans as well every year. And so that's the purpose. Now, in Ireland, we have very, very little of this. I've been looking into this a little bit. We have a bat bridge uh, which was built on the Galway Ennis Motorway. And I know you're going to ask me, what is a bat bridge? A bat bridge is a, an overpass that was specially designed because this particular motorway sliced right through uh, a well-established bat habitat. This bridge was overlaid to allow the bats to fly safely because they fly at quite low levels, sl- safely over it to, to continue to access uh, different parts of their own habitat. Now, There are other places in Ireland, for example, where we have underpasses, under motorways. They allow, say, otters and badgers and foxes and so on to 
to traverse it. But by and large, these are very few and far between. But are they uh, necessarily this, needed now? Because hasn't there been a lot of due care and consideration given to the location of the construction of motorways and main roads in this country? Because famously, many extensions or many routes have been stopped because of concerns for things like bats. Well, if you take, say, the, the road that goes down my neck of the woods, the M9, I mean, basically, it just goes zam right through the countryside, literally from slicing from Kildare all the way to Waterford. And this is not weaving down the down the countryside trying to avoid uh, sensitive habitats. They basically, obviously, they, they have to negotiate with landowners, et cetera, et cetera. They've got to avoid towns and villages. So when you what you're left with is very few locations, and it's unavoidable that a motorway is going to split off habitats. I mean, that's just a fact of life. And if we have motorways, which we have, then there's no point in saying, well, it's too bad. What we have to look at instead is, should we be investing in Ireland in building these overpasses? Now, for example, Matt, uh, when these motorways are put in, uh, we build overpasses to allow cattle, for example, to cross where a farm is split in two. You, you often see, if you drive down the motorway, you'll often see cattle crossing over them. Or if you go down the, the, the curra, you'll see horses crossing over them. Now, that makes perfect sense because the landowner's land has been split. Their farm has been split into two. So this overpass was built as part of the planning. The problem is uh, that the landowners obviously are good at articulating their needs. Uh, the problem is nature isn't so good at getting a seat at the table saying, hang on a second, there's badgers here, there's hedgehogs here, there's foxes here, there's shrews and voles, and their habitats have been disrupted. So I guess we have a a newly re-energized National Parks and Wildlife Service, I would hope, for example, that they might work with, the, with the, the National Roads Authority to actually look at retrofitting. And we urgently need to retrofit many of our many of our existing motorways and also, Matt, some of our larger roads to make it safe for animals to traverse them because these, uh, these roads perform what amount to impenetrable barriers. And for animal species, an impenetrable barrier like that, without intending it, can end up being the difference between life and death. One final thing I want to ask you about, a new study in global biodiversity suggesting that a million species are facing extinction. A million? Yeah, that's right, Matt. It's it's uh, the, This is more, again, of, of this growing body of evidence that we're seeing uh, of the vast uh, impacts both of, of human impacts, which are mostly about taking up the space that are, that should be available for other other wildlife, uh, really along the lines we've just described. That's number one. And of course, uh, wildlife also face an additional threat, and that is the threat from the changing climate itself. So it's like a it's a sort of a double headed threat where you've got human incursions into uh, habitats and the loss of habitat, which is the number one thing, particularly where land is converted, say, from natural habitat to, to, to uh, farming, which is the number one cause of biodiversity loss worldwide at the moment. Uh, and then, as I say, increasing temperatures, pushing animals and species outside of their of their habitable temperature zone. Now, normally what animals do when they uh, when when the circumstances in their area change to make that area uninhabitable, they move. But of course, if you're a species and you need to move north and your movement is impeded, for example, by a city or by a railway line or by a motorway, the problem then is you're trapped. And if you move then outside of your survivability zone, you very quickly find these species disappearing. But the the, the, the top line number that you mentioned, this million species, this has come up time and time again. And we can expect that level of loss uh, over the next 30 to 40 years. And it's an absolutely frightening thought. Because Why is it frightening? Is it not just part of natural evolution? If it were part of natural evolution, Matt, and you're absolutely right, species extinction is part of the natural cycle. But but human pressures are accelerating the, that natural cycle by a factor of about a thousand. 
In other words, you would normally expect in a given year uh, or, or decade even a, a small handful of species to naturally go extinct as a result of changes in local habitats. So human pressures are increasing that between maybe between 100 and 1,000 fold. And the problem with that, of course, is we're essentially knocking large lumps out of the web of life. And the trick about knocking lumps out of the web of life, Matt, is we don't really know which lumps are critical, for example, to our own survival. So it's a bit like uh, somebody described it. It's like removing the rivets from an airplane. You know, you might take a few out here and there and nothing happens. You take a few more out and eventually the thing falls out of the sky. Ecosystems are a bit like that. They're complex, lots of interactions and lots of overlap, lots of, of, of redundancy of function. The problem is when you simplify ecosystems as human pressures are doing and then you apply more and more pressure, they don't just fade away, Matt. They tend to collapse. And when systems collapse, uh, you find that one species that depends for example, a particular type of plant that is pollinated by a particular type of species, a particular insect, if that insect goes extinct, well, that dooms the plant as well. Because in nature, we have so many relationships that are complex and overlapping. And, and I guess human pressures all across the system are, are, are weighing down in the natural world. And I suppose it's really up, it behoves us uh, to, to look and listen as to how we can help to relieve those pressures. And some of the suggestions, and for example, in this week's uh, National Biodiversity Conference in Dublin, some of the speakers will be looking at ways that we can ease the pressure on the natural world uh, and give back space to nature. That's the key thing, uh, Matt. Nature doesn't need humans to run it. All that nature requires from humans is to leave it alone. Nature has been running the show here for a billion years. John Gibbons, thank you for joining us for our weekly Environment Spot. Go off and take a couple of weeks' holidays, enjoy yourself, and we'll talk to you again on your return. The last word on the environment on Today FM with ESB Networks, connecting you to a clean electric future. ESBNetworks.ie